BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Congressman Ro Khanna will be with us in just a moment, taking your calls in a national progressive town hall meeting. And we've got a geeky science about the coronavirus attacking fat tissue and how to stay physically active and have that protect your aging brain. So all that's going on, but let's start out with Congressman Ro Khanna. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep Ro Khanna. He's with us for the hour, taking your calls. Congressman, welcome back. What's at the top of your list for, uh, for this day and week and month? Tom, great to be on. Uh, we are uh, still pushing very hard to make sure that Build Back Better passes through the Senate, that it doesn't get diluted. Uh, you know, there have been uh, senators who have talked in our mansion of delaying it till next year and expressing concerns about the climate provisions. So the Progressive Caucus has really been pushing to say we have to do that. And it's actually going to decrease people's costs, decrease prescription drug costs, decrease costs when it comes to child care, elder care, uh, invest in uh, supply chains, get people back to, to work. So uh, really, that has been the, the, the focus uh, as we, we uh, head towards the end of the year. What are the prospects? I realize you're in the House and this is happening in the Senate, but, but you're, you know, you're kind of in the middle. Um, what are the prospects of getting voting rights legislation passed? My friend and colleague Joe Madison is, I think, about three weeks into a, into a, a hunger strike on this. He, he's on the radio here, also on SiriusXM. And you know, trying to trying to push for this, and and there's uh, you've got this group of 20 students now down in Arizona who are on a hunger yeah. strike to try to get Kirsten Cinema to go along with it. What's the latest? Well, I have so much admiration for those students and for for Joe and the the activism. I mean, I I think this is the most important thing. I mean, even more than Build Back Better to get people uh, the right to vote, and it's uh, important in a moral sense. It's important in a practical sense in terms of the 2022 elections and 24 elections, it all comes down to cinema and mansion and, and the filibuster. You know, the president's plan was let's get his economic agenda passed. I think he thought it would get passed a few months ago, and then he would start putting pressure on the filibuster. But I don't think there's time to waste. I think he has to come out very strong right at the turn of the new year. We've got about a month window if we're going to get this done. Uh, I, I think right now, and because I'm always candid, Tom, I, I, I think the, the prospects aren't great. I mean, the, 
the uh, folks are, or the couple senators are still holding out on the filibuster, it's really going to take massive mobilization to, to change the dynamics. So it's up to us to a certain extent to, to, to reach out to our members of Congress and let them know what we think about this, it seems. So. Absolutely. You know, I, there was a, one more thought. I, there was a brilliant piece in the New York Times yesterday. I forget the author. He's a professor of history where he says that, you know, presidencies have uh, durations. And he called it the, the age of Reagan or the age of FDR. And he said then there's a, a break. And he said, look, Joe Biden has, has taken a break, but he hasn't really uh, broken in a, in a complete way, which would be voting rights, which would be ending the filibuster, which would be really a progressive agenda. And he said the reason for that is uh, there isn't yet a mobilized social movement, that that's what, what the missing piece is. And that's what Bernie always said on the campaign trail. And so I think that's what it's going to take on voting rights. And that's us. We've got we've to get our, get our voices heard and not turn away from the, the horrors of what's going on. Well, uh, you're with us for the hour. Let's pick up some phone calls, eh? That sounds great. Okay, Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls. Fred in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes. Um, I got time to vacuum. Fred, you got time to vacuum? Hello. Hey, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi. Um, I, my question is about Medicare Advantage. I know I've heard a lot of rants against it, and I'm just wondering what the alternatives would be. Medigap seems to be much, much more expensive. Well, Tom, I love your thoughts, too. But my understanding of Medicare Advantage is that a lot of these plans, they look good, they sound good, uh, they're cheap up on the front end, but then, God forbid, you get a catastrophic illness or you have a long stay in the hospital and you end up with enormous amounts that are not covered. And the alternative to that is what Senator Sanders proposed, which is Medicare for all with benefits that will cover uh, all of their basic illnesses and won't have premiums or co-pays. And that would actually save money because you're getting rid of a lot of the deadweight costs of the insurance industry. Yeah, I, I completely agree. The, the one thing I would add to the, that is and I just learned about this in the last six months myself, is this pilot program that they started during the Trump administration called Direct Contact Contracting Entities, where if your doctor or your hospital signs up with one, and, and some of these DCEs are actually hedge funds, uh, you, and basically they become Medicare Advantage providers, and, you, and your doctor or hospital signs up with them and becomes a direct contracting entity, and they can flip you off Medicare and onto a Medicare Advantage program without you even knowing it. And wow! Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, and they they just did this to retirees in the state of New York because there's something like thirty, forty thousand people. It's happening all across the country. They are aggressively trying to roll this out. There are people in the Biden administration who are starting to realize that you know this this thing is happening. I don't recall if the. Um, if the uh, Trump guys who who are running Social Security and Medicare are still in there or if they have been replaced yet. I, I know that there was a lot of movement to replace them, but this DCE thing is downright scary. And I'm hearing from people who have been shifted off Medicare. And, and once you're shifted on a Medicare Advantage, if it's past you know, the first year of sign up, getting back onto Medicare is difficult. And, and getting a, and then after that, the, the Medigap plans don't have to cover your pre-existing coverage or they can simply refuse to cover you. So it, it, it's a real, uh, 
Uh, This is a wild thing. You need to check out the DCE, they're called, Direct Contacting Entities. I'm going to do that. I mean, but to take people, to switch people without even their informed consent is really crossing a line. So uh, thanks for raising that. It's huge. And this thing is going to blow up. This is, this is, uh, this is, uh, how do you say it? The next big thing, I think, in, in politics. Anyhow, picking up phone calls here. Will in Orlando, Florida, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Thank you so much. Uh, Representative, um, I, three years ago, I had an opportunity to go to Ukraine and uh, spend 28 days in Kiev meeting the people, uh, looking at their culture. Um, and what's currently happening in Ukraine is troubling uh, for me um, because I know how fiercely independent the Ukrainians are and how they absolutely loathe Russians. What can we do as a country to not just economic pressure, but to solidify a clear line between Ukraine and the, and the former Soviet Union, current Russia, to let them know that the sovereignty of a nation is not something that's negotiable. Can we expedite their entrance into NATO? Can we expedite their entrance into the EU to give them more permanent protections? Is that at all a possibility? Well, I'll tell you, I appreciate you raising this. I, I'll tell you what I believe we ought to do. We ought to make sure clear, of course, to Putin that uh, we are not going to stand for the in- invasion, as the president has. He has said that there are a, a number of uh, sanctions much stronger than what we used in 2014 that are available that would really hurt uh, both the Russian energy interests and financial interests. And I think he's made that very clear. And he's talked about having diplomacy in eastern Ukraine so we can resolve uh, the situation in, in Ukraine. Uh, I am not uh, in support of uh, expanding uh, NATO to, to include Ukraine. I think that, that is unnecessarily uh, provocative at a time that could push uh, Russia further into the arms of China. Uh, but I am for being clear that we will not stand by an invasion of, of Ukraine as the president has. Brilliant. I completely agree with you on all points. Thank you. Congressman Ro Khanna is here with us taking your calls for the hour in a National Progressive Town Hall meeting. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. And you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Representative Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour. Stick around. Stephen in Oakland, California. Stephen, you're on the air with Representative Khanna. Yeah, hi, guys. Thank you. Information first about the DCEs. Uh, Congresswoman Jayapal is heading up a letter to uh, Secretary Becerra that uh, she's asking Congress people to sign by uh, next Tuesday um, to move on uh, limiting getting rid of the DCEs. That's the direct um, contracting entities who are who will flip you to yeah. Medicare Advantage without you knowing it. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. I'll get on and, that letter. Uh, the, yeah, great. Thank, the question is, anything happening with your uh, waiver bill, health care waiver bill? Stephen, I appreciate you raising it. And what the bill would do is make it easier for states to get a federal waiver that if they cover 95-plus uh, percent in a single-payer system, they can use their federal Medicare, Medicaid money towards that system, which would make it much more economical to uh, actually have single-payer in the states, and that's how we got single-payer in Canada. It went from Saskatchewan province to, to nationally. Uh, we are still pushing for a vote off that in the House, 
Uh, and, you know, we have to build broader consensus with some of the moderate colleagues that it's at least willing. We ought to at least give states the option of uh, doing single pair. Cool. Tom in North Hollywood, California, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Uh, yeah, good morning. Uh, first off, we the people are the government, and we must never forget that. Uh, Ro, big fan. I follow you on Twitter and everything. Um, but I'm not a big fan of James Carville, but at the same time, what he said on MSNBC last night about the Dems fighting fire with fire. And I just feel like sometimes, and this is the question I have, when is it that the Democratic Party, even someone like yourself, even though it might not be your disposition, when is it that you guys are going to, I guess, and I don't mean it's a negative way, but when is it that you guys are going to act like you care, like we the people actually care? Because all I get, all I see is a lot of um, legislative talk and a lot of this and that, but I don't see anything that is reaching we the people in terms of our everyday lives and really speaking at it in a way that can speak to that average person that's out there. I, I just don't see it. I see you guys all talking in terms of legislative niceties and all this kind of stuff. I'm sorry, Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Smallbirds and these people and, and Matt Gates, they are not your friends. And I wish they quit calling them your friends. Or So, Tom, let's, let's let Representative Connor respond. We're, we're running sorry, out of time. Sorry, here. Tom. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I, I take your point that we've got to speak simply and we've got to communicate, you know, what that we're doing for people. We're, you know, lowering their costs, lowering their prescription drug costs. We're lowering uh, costs for child care. We're lowering costs for preschool. We're putting money in people's pockets. That's what the child tax credit's all about, 300 bucks for every family, working class family per child. We're in giving people, Americans finally a raise with the earned income tax credit for working families. And then we ought to be very clear that uh, the other side is engaged in chaos and the destruction of uh, democratic norms and institutions, and we're going to stand up for it. Uh, so I, I, I agree with you. We, we, we need to have righteous indignation and anger uh, when speaking about what they're doing to subvert democracy. We'll be right back. It's 20 minutes past the hour. Congressman Ro Khanna with us for the hour, taking your calls in our National Progressive Town Hall meeting. We'll be back right after this. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour. Patrick in Marietta, Georgia. Patrick, you are on the air with Representative Khanna. Hello. Good day. Thank you for allowing me to take, be on the phone. I have a question regarding immigration. Uh, that, those issues, of course, are, are used by Republicans to beat Democrats over the head, but there's very little enforcement of the existing laws against the employers. What could be done to make that those enforcement uh, actions happen and maybe increase the fines and perhaps give uh, American workers or permanent residents who are here legally that provide evidence against their own employers, perhaps, you know, 20% of the money recovered, like a whistleblower or something. Uh, I imagine some of the same arguments are raised in California as we see here in Georgia, and I uh, just wondered what your thoughts are. I agree with you completely, and I, I know Tom has spoken about this for years. Uh, the, the reality is if you want to go after the, uh, those who are bringing in uh, immigrants against the law, you ought to go after the big employers. You have to go after them because they're engaged in basically wage theft or engaged in uh, depressing wages, and they ought to be paying the penalty. Don't go after uh, someone who's undocumented who's coming here because they uh, were uh, recruited and, uh, and employed by one of these big employers. So uh, I think the Democrats can talk about making sure that companies aren't using uh, immigrant labor uh, to depress wages. Sandra, be penalizing them. Yeah. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Hi. I was just thinking when he was talking about some of the other things about how the Second Amendment uh, people are always out there, you know, rallying for their Second Amendment rights. But it does say second. And so there was one that came before that. And if my memory serves correctly, the First Amendment says the right to life. And I keep wondering why Second Amendment people can run around with their guns and, and do whatever they want, wherever they want, and that's okay. But my right to life and everybody else's right to life gets trumped by people that don't remember the order of those amendments and if there's anything we can do about it. You're right that uh, the Constitution in general provides for uh, making sure that we care about the general welfare, that we care about people's safety and defense. Uh, and that while people have the uh, right to bear arms, that has to be exercised in a way uh, that's not absolute, that doesn't uh, cause uh, a threat to other people's lives and to uh, general public safety. And that's why uh, having reasonable, common-sense uh, regulations on how you use guns uh, it should not be politicized in this country. Unfortunately, you have people who have politicized it, and it's for us to make the argument that these are reasonable uh, re regulations that are perfectly constitutional, and, and we need that, uh, or you're going to have more tragic cases like what happened in Michigan with those high school kids uh, being shot and their lives ended, the family shattered. 
John in, uh, is it Navarre, Florida? Uh, hi, Tom. It's Navarre, Florida. Thanks Navarre. very much for having me on the program. Mm -hmm. Sure. We just, we just have I a minute have, and a half here, so a quick question. I have, I, I've got all of your untold history books. Have all of the series as topics been selected? You need to write uh, untold history of U.S. empire. Talk about Iran 53, Guatemala 54, and maybe associated with that, can Representative Khanna talk about the uh, votes in the uh, Progressive Caucus against the NDAA and how it's going to go, politics going forward, about the Progressive Caucus vote against the uh, military-industrial complex and the huge uh, bloated military budget. And I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Thank you, John. John, thank you for the points. I voted against the NDAA. I think I was one of 51 or so Democrats who voted against it. I don't understand how, as a Democratic Party, we're voting for a defense budget that is larger in real dollars than at the height of the Cold War, than it's larger than Trump's budgets. To put it in perspective, the, about $780 billion a year of defense, over 50 percent of discretionary federal spending. And comparatively, the Build Back Better is $175 billion a year and a lot of this money is going to legacy equipment that actually isn't even going to keep us competitive and safe in the 21st century and a lot of it's going to defense contractors and their executives so we need to stand up to this and invest in what's really going to keep america secure and prosperous congressman ro Khanna is with us for the hour taking your calls in a progressive national town hall meeting here on the tom hartman program He's uh, vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th District of California uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Kana, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov is his website. You can tweet him at Rep. Pro Kana. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from the Tom Hartman Reader, which is excerpts from other books that I've written. This excerpt is from Threshold. We're on page 239. Starts out with, I went to Corral, Peru. It's the first mother city, the first original city that has ever been discovered intact. It's 5,000 years old. It has been buried for 4,000 years. It was just excavated in the last decade. I went down to Peru. We did our radio show from there. And I met with Dr. Ruth Shady, who is the anthropologist and archaeologist who's running this. And she said, well, as we sat and ate, I asked her what was the most significant fact about Corral. Here, she said, the civilization was different, contrasting the Corral of 5,000 years ago with the city-states that were emerging in Egypt, India, and Asia at that time. The focus of the culture here was different. When this civilization was formed here, peace was very important. There was no war. She paused and looked at me with a glint in her eye. Why? Why was there no war? She asked as if quizzing me. It turns out they found this city that had been there for a thousand years, and there wasn't a single instrument of war or violence anywhere in the city. Music, dancing, flutes, amphitheaters, no war. So then we jump to page 244. Are we innately evil or good, warlike or peaceful? In 1634, in his book Leviathan, Thomas Hobbes stated our culture's assumption of the essentially evil nature of humans, saying that life without the iron fist of church or state would be war of every man against every man, resulting in a society where life is poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A generation later, John Jacques Rousseau and John Locke challenged Hobbes, suggesting that evidence from tribes being discovered across Africa and the Americas by European explorers demonstrated that instead, 
The natural state of humankind was good, egalitarian, and peaceful. The thinking of Rousseau and Locke explicitly and overtly influenced the founders of the United States, particularly Thomas Jefferson, who saw verification in it in his own contact with Native Americans. Thus began America as an egalitarian experiment, an experiment that has been expanded and developed by nearly a hundred other nations in the world that claim democracy, particularly the countries of Northern Europe, where once feared and warlike people, most notably the Vikings of Norway and Sweden, are now among the happiest and most peaceful and self-sufficient people in the world. Yet the Hobbeses of the world are currently ascendant in terms of both war on humans and war on the environment. But what should be done? As I said in Leonardo DiCaprio's environmental documentary, The Eleventh Hour, the problem is not a problem of technology. The problem is not a problem of too much carbon dioxide. The problem is not a problem of global warming. The problem is not a problem of waste. All of those things are symptoms of the problem. The problem is the way that we are thinking. The problem is fundamentally a cultural problem. It's at the level of our culture that this illness is happening. In my books, I've shared stories from all around the world of cultures that have matured, awakened, and found ways to live in peace, harmony, and ecological balance, and the fate of others that have not. Some are pre-city, aboriginal, and tribal people. Some are modern communities. Some are fully developed city-states moving quickly in the direction of peace. All offer us a new vision of how life can be in a world where the core assumptions of modern culture are challenged and modified. This is not a radical or new age or easily dismissed concept. It started with the enlightenment of the 17th century. Its first experiment was the founding of the United States in the 18th century. Flawed, but a great experiment. It flowered throughout the world throughout the 19th century as nation after nation flipped from warrior king states to democracies. It found global acceptance in the 20th century with the foundation of the United Nations, the first international organization whose single explicit purpose was to create, promote, and maintain worldwide peace. And now in the 21st century, as war against both humans and against nature is increasingly being viewed with horror by people around the world, movements are springing up all over the planet to reject the immature cultural paradigms of the past and move us into a post-carbon, post-warfare, egalitarian, and peaceful world where there's room for both humans and for all other life. Then we start a chapter, Why and When Did War Begin?, if it's true, as scientists from Peter Farb to Rianne Eisler to Ruth Shady point out, that a prime differentiator between war societies and peaceful societies is the role of power relationships between men and women, the question is raised, why and when does war begin and how is it related to the relationship between the sexes? Most preliterate cultures, from those in the Arctic to those in the southernmost tips of South America and Africa, were largely peaceful before contact with technology and our culture. While there was conflict, and often violent conflict, it rarely reached the proportions of organized, sustained, legally sanctioned mass murder that we today refer to as war. As the anthropologist Peter Farb has documented, some Native American societies, for example the Shoshone, didn't even have a word for war in their vocabulary. Others used organized games to resolve conflicts. Many theories have been put forward for how and why the warrior mentality took over, and then it goes on to whether this started with animal husbandry or whether it started with agriculture, where did war begin, and, and some interesting stuff. So it's in the Tom Hartman Reader. Congressman Ro Khanna is with us for the hour, Vice Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, taking your calls. Jerry in McKinney, Texas, you are on the air with Representative Khanna. 
Hi, Tom. Never called your show. Uh, I did want to ask the congressman this. Uh, the last gentleman talked about, quote, unquote, illegal immigrants and this, that, and the other. Um, I'm wondering if we're going to work towards a pathway to citizenship. DACA seems to be stalled out. All these other things are stalled out. What can we as citizens do? Because uh, respectfully, going after all the employers is just going to make everything worse for everybody. Well, Jerry, we, we, we definitely need a path to citizenship. I, we had about uh, 60 progressives, had a big press conference. We wrote to the Senate. Uh, I don't think one parliamentarian should be able to deny a vote on a, a pathway to, a citizen, to citizenship. And if we don't get it in Build Back Better, then we need to pass it in the House as a standalone. It's a unconscionable that people are here uh, for, for years and that we're not giving them a stake in America. It makes no sense if you care about cultivating a love of country in, in people uh, to not have them be, have the opportunity to, to earn citizenship. And so we will continue to fight for that. Chester in Missoula, Montana, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Hi, my question is, what is Congress currently doing to help the permanently disabled, both physically and mentally? Chester, uh, Congress uh, is going is doing uh, a lot. I mean, in the American Rescue Plan and in our current plans, there are there are funds that are specifically uh, designed uh, to help those with disabilities uh, both get support, but also to facilitate what the appropriate type of uh, work for them may be, opportunities for them may be. But I'm open to to other ideas that that you may have. I do know that we need to increase. Uh, the amount of SSDI and SSI allow uh, for people to have more wealth uh, accumulated before they get kicked off. So there are certain reforms, I think, that can, can help. Ziggy in Oneata, New York, you are on the air with Representative Connor. Thank you. Uh, Congressman, I want to take issue with a question that the uh, answer you gave to a caller a week ago. And the caller's question was basically, why don't the Democrats use plain English like words like fascism against our opponents? And you said you'd rather use authoritarianism. And my, I agree with the caller because we need simple words that motivate people, and you need to market better. And when you use the big words, it just sounds like it's a uh, new variant of COVID. What say you? I'm all for using simple words, uh, and I, I, I agree that we ought to be very factual, that they're trying to destroy democratic institutions, that they're trying to uh, subvert elections, that they instigated an insurrection, and that here's what we're going to do. We're going to lower prices. We're going to put more money in people's pockets. We're going to get them health care. We're going to raise the wage. Uh, so I, I, I agree with you. But I also think that we should not uh, just use simple words for the sake of using simple words. I mean, I think some of our great American uh, thinkers and leaders appealed to the challenged us and they appealed to our aspirations and they led us. And so that is democracy at its best. And so I don't think we should just use simplicity and, and ignore a possibility of all that America can be and aspire to.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Glenn in Alamogordo, New Mexico. You are on the air with Representative Kana. Thank you very much. Representative Kana, I really appreciate what you've been doing. And Tom, I've been a fan of yours since before Air America. Thank you. This is going to be odd and seem to be in the weeds for you, but I'm a manufacturer of uh, environmental solutions in southern New Mexico, right? And uh, it seems that in the last four, four to five years working with uh, trying to work with government because this is the only only way it can can actually work. Uh, there's nothing but roadblocks. No matter where you turn, there, there seems to be a pool of uh, companies and people that government has a tendency to work with. And the the problem is those are the same people that got us in the situation we're in now. I work in extreme water saving technologies out here in southern New Mexico where there's, it's absolutely needed. And we, if we continue to work towards net zero, which is great, um, by the time we're at net zero, most of the desert southwest will be out of water. And there's no solutions being profited uh, or, or proffered in those arenas. And when, when it's brought up to people, they just don't pay attention because it's not something that's in there that, that they're focused on. Right now, they're focused on stopping all the things going in the atmosphere. There's almost no, no uh, concentration on pulling the stuff out of the atmosphere. That's, so, Glenn, that's what's your question? My, my question is how... How is it that small companies like ours who have real solutions can break through all of the roadblocks that are put up by government? Thank you. Glenn, I appreciate that. Well, hopefully, first of all, Build Back Better is going to provide $550 billion of climate investment, and it will be uh, distributed by the uh, Department of Energy, National Science Foundation, in ways that will engage the private sector. Part of the money uh, is, in, is intended uh, to be in partnership with the private sector in innovative solutions. Now, you're right to critique uh, the distribution. And often it's uh, uh, with people who have lobbyists and connections in, uh, in the beltway. Uh, and we need to have the right safeguards and right philosophy uh, that gets them to extend beyond that and really uh, look uh, at the merit. I do believe this, this administration is committed to doing that, uh, and I'll work on that. Uh, when the implementation of Build Back Better takes place. Michael in San Francisco, you're on the air with Rep. Rep. Khanna. Yeah, hi, uh, Representative. You know, I wonder why Democrats can't do better in rural areas, really, with the farm community and farmers. After all, they are small businessmen, and they rely on migrant workers. And the, the this kind of follows up on 
what that previous caller was saying about essentially punishing employers who hire illegal workers, farmers rely on migrant work, and they don't like essentially to have to break the law. But you're a congressman in California. You know that, frankly, they do have to do it. Uh, and there's a whole matrix of ways in which they hire people short term and then they hire other people. But what it boils down to is nobody really gets a very good shake out of that. The farmers should be able to hire migrant workers. American workers are not taking those jobs on farms. It's just not happening. And it would promote, I think, would, I mean, just as an example, in Minnesota, it's called the Democrat, the Democratic Party is the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. There is a long tradition of this in the Democratic Party. What, why can't we get back to that? Well, I agree with you that we shouldn't be going after family farmers or individual farmers who hire uh, migrant workers. What, what I think I was emphasizing or the previous caller is that if they're big corporations that are engaged in uh, Ill- illegal hiring in a way to suppress wages or break unions, uh, that's really what uh, we should go after. But I think you're right that the Democratic Party can have a message to farmers. One of it ought to be about uh, price parity. I mean, you talk to dairy farmers, you talk to other farmers. I know because I was on the trail with Bernie Sanders, and they'll tell you they're not being able to sell uh, at a profit, that the costs are so high and they don't have the appropriate price floor. I think we ought to have a real policy that they actually get paid uh, so that they can make a basic profit. And then we ought to have a real vision for rural America so young people don't have to leave their hometowns and can live in the hometown and still have economic prosperity in the 21st century. Uh, I do think the Democratic Party could have that kind of uh, a focus. Uh, I, I don't think we've focused enough on those issues. Uh, Lori in Ocala, Florida, you're on the air with Representative Conn. Good afternoon, Representative. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, we're still in the midst of a pandemic, and we're constantly looking for ways to mitigate sickness and death. Would now be a good time for President Biden to develop, not necessarily, not necessarily implement develop and establish a national emergency vote-by-mail process so that not when we need it, I agree with you that uh, it makes sense for the president uh, to think through pandemic preparedness. I mean, obviously, after he gets the current pandemic under control, and part of that could be what do we need to do to vote in that situation, uh, what what are the safeguards we can have so we don't have the same amount of deaths if this happens again? Uh, all of that should be uh, something that the president and Congress come up with. Representative Ro Khanna is on the line with us, taking your calls for the hour in a National Progressive Town Hall meeting. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You can find his website at Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep Ro Khanna. We'll be right back. Joe in Cupertino, California, you are on the air with your congressman. Good morning. Merry Christmas to Joyce and Tom. Merry Christmas to you. And Congressman, I really, really appreciate your vision. I have a concern, and I wanted to pick your brain. What are we going to do about this Yemen situation? I know you didn't sign off on the Defense Department, but this is still going on. Saudi Arabia is still being getting the weapons. I, I just, I, I'm at loss for words. There are a lot of things that are pending in this world right now, but this is something that needs to be addressed. And, and I don't feel that the president understands the severity of the situation. Can you speak to, with him, or is there something that we can do to prevent the sale of these weapons to a country that is an, I don't want to say our enemy, but is not our friend? So what do you think? Please help. 
Joe, thank you. The Yemen crisis is the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Uh, the United States, unfortunately, was directly complicit in it since 2015. We basically provided the Saudis with refueling, uh, with equipment to bomb Yemen. Uh, and we now have stopped the refueling of Saudi planes, but we're still continuing to supply them with the parts that they're using to uh, in their airplanes that are bombing Yemeni's kids. And the Saudis are still having the blockade. Senator Sanders and I uh, had a war powers resolution that passed for the first time in history. It was vetoed by Trump. Uh, then we had an amendment now, which would have stopped all of the spare parts to uh, the Saudis. Unfortunately, it was stripped in, in the Senate conference. It's unconscionable that the Senate has voted to approve the second arms sales to the, to the Saudis. So both Senator Sanders and I and others are speaking with Jake Sullivan, with the administration, and we're going to continue to figure out how we ratchet up pressure so our complicity in aiding the Saudis stops. Judy in Sun Lakes, Arizona, you're on the air with Representative Khanna. Uh, hi there, Representative Khanna. Uh, I'm calling uh, because I recently went on to Medicare, uh, and for years I've been uh, seeing for my primary care a, a naturopath. And with the ACA, uh, it was granted that, and I was okay with having to pay all kinds of things out of pocket. But one of the things that the ACA did cover was when my naturopath ordered uh, lab tests, uh, they were covered uh, under the ACA. They are not covered under Medicare. I have to actually do, I was advised by my naturopath that I have to do a go around and find a doctor who is willing to work with my naturopath so that she, so that, you know, he or she will order my labs so that they'll be covered by Medicare for my naturopath. She can't do it directly, whereas before I was able to do that under the ACA. So this seems to be something that's kind of fallen through the crack, and I'm guessing I'm probably not the only one that's experiencing this. So I um, wanted to bring that to your attention and see what can be done about it. Thank you for raising this. If you write to me um, afterwards, we will look into this. Because Medicare should cover this. This is why we want single-payer and Medicare for all. A lot of people don't realize that it's not just about expanding Medicare. It's about making sure that there are no deductibles, no premiums, and that Medicare is actually covering all of the procedures and benefits that people need and that there's a consistency so that things like this don't happen. But on this unique issue, I'm happy to look into it and write to CMS uh, about uh, why this isn't being covered by Medicare if it's being covered by the ACA. Valerie in San Diego, you are on the air with Representative Khanna. Oh, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I am one of the homeless people in San Diego, and um, one of the reasons that is often ignored about why some of the people are homeless is that we just happen to be on disability. On disability, there's no such thing as affordable housing. And um, basically the money that we get on disability is just for our living expenses. So we can either rent or we can live, we can't do both. So what I would like to see happen, and I'm so glad that I can talk to you because I wanted to talk to somebody in Congress about this, we need to raise the rates of, of disability SSI because it, is, it has been stymied for so long that we are way behind the curve of being able to afford to live. 
Well, thank you for speaking out. Thank you for sharing your story. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think SSI is at about 700 bucks a month. Uh, you can't live on 700 bucks a month. And my understanding is SSDI uh, is about $1,200 if you are able to work uh, a little bit. And this is way too low. Uh, it is not nearly enough to be able to have any dignity in terms of living. Uh, and those rates, those need to be raised. Uh, Jamal Bowman, a representative from New York, has a bill to do that. And uh, I believe this has to be a priority uh, for the Democratic Party. Marianne in Scats Valley, California, you're on the air with Representative Khan. Hi. Thank you, Representative, for taking my call and for all your hard work on our behalf. I have a question about whether or not it would be legal to, on the reconciliation bill, have a voters protection bill go through and i know it has to have money attached to it but many many all of our states in fact need either new voting machines or better voter protections so would it be legal to do that i don't know if it would be legal or not thank you well it's a reasonable argument and certainly you can make a case that uh, enforcing voting rights has a budget impact. Unfortunately, it doesn't matter what you or I think. It only matters what one person in this country thinks, the Senate parliamentarian who hasn't been elected to anything. And she's very conservative about how she interprets what you can do in reconciliation. And she's unlikely to allow for voting rights to be part of it. I mean, she didn't even allow for a $15 wage, which clearly has budget impacts to, to be part of reconciliation. So, uh, we're going to have to pass this uh, separately, given what we're dealing with in the Senate parliamentarian. Doug in Portland, Oregon, you're on the air with Representative Kana. Uh, good morning. Well, first of all, I appreciate the service you both provide to us. And um, my question is a, sort of about preaching to the choir. I'm always curious about writing or c contacting my own representatives because we're essentially on the same page and I don't want to waste their time or the time of their staff. So my question is sort of what's, what's the value in me proposing something or sharing my feeling when I know my uh, congressperson is on the same page already? Well, it's good you have a congressperson on the same page, but I still think it uh, matters. I'll tell you why. Uh, first, it gives you a sense of what the priority is. So if we get 100 people writing in about uh, forgiving student loans, uh, that gives you a sense, okay, this is really what we need to prioritize and, and fight for. Second, a lot of times people have creative ideas on how to push new legislation, uh, so that matters. So I I think uh, it's, it's amazing to me uh, how much people underestimate their own role in influencing uh, members of Congress. If you get 50 authentic uh, viewpoints that someone uh, sends in, people send in, a uh, member of Congress will pay attention. Michael in Seattle, you're on the air with Representative Connor. Hey, Tom. Um, hey, Congressman. Thanks so much. I think this is a quick question, but what can we as members of the public do you know, to really effectively help you advance the progressive agenda? Michael, I appreciate the question. I, I, I ultimately think we've got to build a movement, a movement independent of uh, just Senator Sanders or Senator Warren, independent of a presidential campaign, but a movement that says in this country that we need a $15 wage, that we need unions, that we need uh, Medicare for all, health care for everyone, that we need to have free public college or free vocational education, that for too long, 
people have been left out of an economy that only seems to work for the very, very top and that we need a fundamental change. And, and, and we have to have that kind of a, uh, a, a movement, a sustained movement uh, that will allow us to enact legislation. Now, some of it exists, and this is why I think Biden has been much more pro- progressive than I even expected. Uh, but until we have that robust movement, we won't get a full progressive agenda. Congressman, we just have about 20 seconds. Um, thoughts on what we should be paying attention to here and between now and the next time we hear from you? I think we've got to make sure that this Build Back Better bill passes, that the climate provisions uh, are not diluted. We need to continue to push for this path to citizenship on uh, immigration, either either through reconciliation uh, or some other means. And then the, the big issue is voting rights. I mean, we've got to make progress uh, before the new year and then certainly what, uh, at the turn of the new year in getting a vote on voting rights. Is the path to citizenship and DACA, those are two separate issues, correct? There are two separate issues. In fact, one of the issues that the Republicans oppose is just a guest worker program with George W. Bush proposed, and they're not even for that. So, yeah. you know, they've just demagogued the immigration issue. Yeah, which is really tragic. Representative Connor, thanks Listen, so happy, much. Happy holidays to everyone. I, I really have loved being on this year, and you've got fantastic listeners. So happy holidays to you, Tom, and all your listeners. Thank you. Back at you, Representative Connor. Thank you so much. Happy holidays to you and yours, too. We'll be back Take care. right after this. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. In our book club today, our book is Border Wars, Inside Trump's Assault on Immigration by Davis and Scheer. This is from the prologue on page five. A Donald John Trump never meant for a giant wall across the entire southwest border to be the totem of his presidential campaign or the icon of his presidency. And he certainly never thought it would be the omnipresent reminder of his biggest frustrations in the White House. But it's because of all those things and the story of how it did, or what it became, but it became all those things. And the story of how it did is the story of Trump's assault on immigration. Conceived of almost by accident out of political expediency and sheer marketing powers, the wall perfectly captured the us versus them spirit that animated Trump's candidacy, became a symbol of the same working class disaffection and sense of alienation that he had first tapped into by questioning Barack Obama's birthplace. For a politically inexperienced president who is untethered from any particular ideology, the wall was a centering force, an organizing principle for his promises. He would fix what was broken in the country. And what better symbol of America's problems than a deeply dysfunctional immigration system that had become a third rail of politics, too charged for either party to touch? Trump vowed to cut through all that, a Manhattan developer who would take a figurative hammer and nail to the task. In doing so, he would gleefully raise a middle finger to political correctness and to the Republican establishment that was looking for ways to appeal to Hispanic voters. And while he was at it, Trump would fan the flames of fear and insecurity by promising to wall off the United States from the threats he imagined were just across the threshold. The them who looked and sounded different from us. Was it racism? Nativism? Xenophobia? Trump and those who knew him best swore that it was not. But Trump's instincts clearly tended toward bigotry, the belief that foreigners were a threat and the native-born Americans were inherently more deserving. And his agenda held deep appeal to white supremacists and others who had felt shut out of politics in America for years, chastised for their views and obsessed with an agenda of racial purity. 
The appeal for Trump was much simpler and more basic. He was a marketing genius, a branding maven, and fear of the other he discovered at his campaign rallies sells like gangbusters. It worked as well on audiences in places like Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, whose once thriving industrial manufacturing workers felt displaced and distraught, as it did in states on the border with Mexico that had been profoundly changed by immigration and immigrants. But as potent a campaign message as the wall became for Trump, and as strong as its gravitational pull grew after he took office, it also stood as a symbol of everything that plagued his immigration policy. It reflected Trump's fixation with ideas that had political power, but were often impossible to implement. His ever-changing dictates about its dimensions and materials were the most concrete examples of the whims of a fickle and deeply insecure president who always grasped for the solution that looked toughest. He pursued the wall over the objections of the career public servants who always knew that a wall was not the solution, just as he would disregard their advice and legal counsel on so many other immigration matters. It was a one-dimensional approach to a complex problem, in large part based on his own ignorance. His determination to build the wall over the objections of Congress reflected his cavalier approach to the law, which invited court challenges at every turn. The years-long war he waged over the wall revealed a bundle of contradictions that was Trump himself, a resident of one of the most diverse cities on the planet who married two immigrants but was hostile to outsiders, a businessman enamored of cheap and readily available labor who pressed for cuts to legal immigration, a self-styled master negotiator who could not cut a deal with Congress on immigration to save his life. Build that wall was the incessant soundtrack of Trump's frenzied campaign rallies, but once in office, he discovered that doing so was an operational, legislative, and legal quagmire that would swallow up his political capital and leave him deeply frustrated. It was a pattern that played out on every level of Trump's immigration agenda. His Muslim ban was an early indication of how the rush to fulfill his campaign promises could sow chaos and spark court challenges. Plotted in secret because Trump's advisors were certain deep state bureaucrats would kill it in the cradle, the travel order embodied the president's approach. Propose something outrageous, divisive, and potentially illegal. Watch your political opponents lose their minds criticizing it. Ask questions and provide policy rationales later. Trump's decision to end protections for dreamers, the undocumented young immigrants who have been brought into the United States as young children, set the stage for months of fighting with Congress and revealed his conflicting instincts, a desire to be seen as compassionate even as he disparaged S-hole countries in Africa and unleashed bare-knuckled tactics on immigrants. His decision to separate migrant children, some just a few months old, from their parents at the border pointed up profound conflicts inside his administration. Some had warned of the dire consequences of a plainly cruel tactic, while others argued that it was the only effective way to deter a horde of migrants from rushing the border. It was one of the only times that Trump retreated under pressure, unwilling to endure a backlash that included members of his own family. And a curious thing, perhaps predictable in retrospect, happened as Trump's immigration crackdown unfolded throughout the country. An actual crisis, different but no less urgent than the one he was constantly warning Americans about, began to develop and worsen at the border. Border Wars by Davis and Scheer. Okay, our geeky science. This, uh, the first, I've got two geeky sciences that are really, really worth knowing about. The first is the coronavirus attacks fat tissue. 
Everybody has been wondering for a year and a half, why is it the people who are obese get are more likely to die, frankly, from coronavirus? And everybody assumed that people who are obese are not quite as healthy as people who are not. And therefore, or maybe it was the physical pressure on their lungs from, you know, having extra weight on their body or something like that. Well, it turns out the coronavirus infects fat cells in addition to lung cells and nose cells and, and uh, uh the olfactory bulb cells and stuff like that. Uh, this uh, Roni Carol, uh, Karen Rabin, writing for the New York Times, the headline, The Coronavirus Attacks Fat Tissues, Scientists Find. Uh, the, uh, and, and the bottom line, she's quoting Dr. Philip Schur. He says, the bottom line is, oh my God, indeed, the virus can infect fat cells directly. And he goes on to say, whatever happens in fat doesn't stay in fat. It affects the neighboring tissues as well. He says, maybe this is the Achilles heel that the virus utilizes to evade our protective immune system by hiding in the fat cells. And uh, one of the reasons, perhaps, that America has one of the highest uh, death rates in the developed world is that we also have the highest obesity rate. Forty-two percent of American adults are obese um, in, in, the, in, the, in the developed world. So there's that, number one. And number two, how staying physically active which also can you know, help you drop some pounds. How staying physically active may protect the aging brain. This is, a, again, from the New York Times, Gretchen Reynolds writing about this. Now, this is about a, a massive study that was done in Chicago on people who were over 80 years old. And there were uh, hundreds of Chicagoans. They wore activity monitors for at least a week. It was a multi-year study. Many of the people in the study died during the study and had, as part of the study, given the researchers uh, willed them their brains so they could examine their brains. And uh, what they found, in fact, before I get to their findings, let me tell you how it works with rats. What they found was that rodent exercise slows or halts uh, the, the uh, age-related age declines in animals' brains by strengthening a particular type of specialized cell called microglial cells, or microglia. Nobody knew what this, basically what they did until recently. And now we know that they're part of the immune system for the brain and kind of the hall monitors, you know, cleaning up, uh, you know, they look for uh, neurons that are dying and create a little inflammation, help them on their way into, into paradise, and then clean up the mess. But the problem is sometimes these microglial cells stop, they fail to turn off their own inflammatory response, and then inflammation just starts cascading in the brain, and you get parts of the brain that get, you know, basically destroyed, and boom, you've got dementia. So what they found, and, and this happens with animals, they said as animals age, recent studies have found their microglia can start to malfunction, initiating inflammation, but not subsequently quieting it, leading to continuous brain inflammation. This chronic inflammation kills healthy cells and causes problems with memory and learning, sometimes severe enough to induce a rodent version of Alzheimer's disease, unless the animals exercise. In that case, postmortem exams of their tissues found the animals' brains typically teem with healthy, helpful microglia deep into old age, displaying few signs of continuous brain inflammation, while the elderly rodents themselves retain a youthful ability to remember and learn. So now to humans, right? First they did the studies on the rats and said, whoa, this is incredible. Now with humans, this study with these uh, multiple hundreds of Chicagoans, 
And uh, as I said, many of the participants died as the study continued. The researchers examined stored brain tissues from 167 of them, searching for lingering biochemical markers of microglial activity. Uh, you know, they wanted to see if people, people's brains behave the same way rats do. And sure enough, here, this is from the study. They found a strong relationship between being in motion and healthy microglia, especially in portions of the brain involved in memory. So, you know, here you go. Microglia from sedentary participants showed signs of having become stuck in unhealthy overdrive during their final years. These inactive men and women also generally scored lowest on cognitive tests. So you want to avoid getting dementia, you want to avoid uh, they actually, it even, they even go into Alzheimer's. People with, who actually have Alzheimer's disease but stay active, it slows down the Alzheimer's and it diminishes. Uh, in fact, they say their brains may have showed signs of Alzheimer's, but their lives and thinking abilities had not. I mean, this is mind-boggling stuff. You know, rather than, well, I, I was going to say rather than a $50,000 a year drug, Although I'm not, you know, I would never want to recommend not taking something your doctor recommends. But it looks like exercise is like a big deal, a real BFD when it comes to brain health. For all mammals, all mammals, that's you and me. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.